Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today we're joined by the wonderful Jen D'Angelo to talk all about Hocus Pocus 2, for which she's the screenwriter. And I wanted to start by talking about the original pitch process, because obviously before coming on board to write the, the script as a whole, it was conceptualizing an idea for the film and, and going into pitch meetings. And obviously as someone who is such a fan of the original and has watched it you know, every Halloween and more often than that by the sounds of it throughout your entire life, um, I was interested in kind of how you approach the pitch process of something that you wanted to have a lot of detail and you wanted to really pay homage to the original, but also to have this something that could exist and stand alone for new audiences as well. And how you really approached going through all those pitch meetings to really figure out the scope of the story that you wanted to tell. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, as you said, I'm a huge fan of Hocus Pocus. So it was so exciting to get the email to be like, do you want to talk to Disney about Hocus Pocus too? And I could not respond fast enough. Uh, <laughs> and I really just started from a place of like, yeah, who's this new main character? Because that seemed so exciting to me of bringing the Sanderson sisters back and making them like the main antagonists in the movie um, because they are hocus pocus. Like it's nothing without them. They're amazing. Uh, and just trying to think of like who would be a really interesting main character to play off of them. And so I started crafting the character of Becca and she was really based on me kind of uh like growing up I obviously was very into Halloween I loved Hocus Pocus I uh there was like a crystal store uh in the suburbs where I grew up and uh I would go there and just be like oh my gosh this like witch store it's so cool <laughs> and I know that that's something that like still resonates with teens of today. Like, you know, there's TikTok witches and like, uh, it's still very much a popular thing. And so I thought that was like a really great way in to start with this like modern aspiring witch who, uh, you know, just hangs out at this magic shop in her town and like loves crystals and tarot and all that stuff. Um, and so it started from her and then, you know, the idea of like building out a new coven and what that looks like and a different type of sisterhood than blood sisterhood. Um, and so that was sort of the impetus for, that was where I started and built everything around that. And through that, you've really constructed a film that also looks at what does it mean to be interested in this or involved in this in different time periods. So we get to see that flashback in kind of the, the first section of the film of what it looked like for the Sanderson sisters. And then how does that have similarities or juxtaposed to Becca's experience in the modern world? And so how did you want to use those two different ideas of covens and sisterhood and friendship to really look at some of the parallels and how people respond? And then also some of the juxtapositions in the fact that things are a little bit different. You know, the idea of a spider is very auspicious in the 1600s in a way that it's not now. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I love like, the prologue was also something that I, that was one of the first ideas as well, because I just felt like you want to start it in the past. Like that time period is so innate to Hocus Pocus and it's so fun to play with. And so, um, yeah, I loved the idea of using it to sort of learn more about the Sanderson sisters than we know from the first one. And then also, yeah, set up how they're different from our coven in the future. And, you know, one of the things that I really love is that like, yes, the prologue, you know, it sort of softens Winifred a little bit because we have empathy for her. We see that the town like really hates her and that she'll do anything to protect her sisters. But then at the same time, you also see that she's like 
violent and like that she's just like shoving people out of the way that like she's still Winifred Sanderson and like the first thing she wants to do when she gets powers is like I'm gonna go burn down this house with people in it <laughs> like she's deliciously evil whereas you know when Becca um gets her powers uh the first thing she wants to do is save her friend and so I loved the idea of sort of exploring like that magic is not necessarily evil like it's it's about the person who's wielding it uh and so that was like a really fun way to uh differentiate the two of them and you're mentioning there some of the structure of the the prologue and it sounds like that was something that you had an idea for very early on that that was such an important part and it is such a huge chunk of the story and how we're first coming into the film um and and I've heard you kind of like speaking previously about really trying to figure out the structure and how you wanted to use that narratively to jump off the film and so what were some of the elements that you found yourself kind of rewriting a little bit or trying to creatively problem solve as you were figuring out how deep are we going into the scope of this part of the story and making sure that it always connects to the present day once we get there. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because the script evolved so much. Like I, I originally was hired in the beginning of 2019, I think. I think like maybe March of 2019. Um, and I did several drafts uh, and was on set during production and was rewriting as we were shooting. And so uh, it really evolved a lot. And the initial um, impetus uh like my initial pitch for it was that the, it wasn't just the prologue that we were sort of going back to the story throughout, uh, um, going back to the past. And like, there are a couple of different things. Uh, there are like different story points that sort of fell out as we move forward. Um, and then we wound up, yeah, like condensing it all into a prologue, um, which was like an interesting puzzle to be like, how do we keep like the things that we really like about these other scenes and, you know, preserve them in like much smaller real estate. Um, cause I originally, <laughs> I remember being like slightly embarrassed, uh, cause I was describing it as Mamma Mia too. I was like, you know, it's like the past and the present. It's like a prequel and a sequel. And, uh, people were like, yeah, you know, that's also Godfather part two. And I was like, okay, well, I've just revealed like my personal film history <laughs> preferred, uh, method, which is, Mamma Mia 2 over Godfather 2, even though Godfather 2, great movie as well, but I love Mamma Mia 2. Um, so yeah, it was interesting to kind of like uh, maintain elements of what we really liked about it, but yeah, in smaller screen time. And also from a narrative structural point, when you first came on board to write this, you know, Bet, Kathy and Sarah Jessica were interested in the idea of reprising these roles, but they hadn't specifically signed on. And so part of that journey of getting them to sign on for the project was getting a great script in front of them. Once they were fully locked on board, did that change the narrative structure of like how much you really wanted to be able to like lean in because they're, you know, they're throughout the entire film aside from that, that prologue bit and really, really utilized as characters. But there's also a chance that they could have potentially come on board just for a cameo situation as well. Um, and so did you always have that structure for the sisters throughout or did that change once they signed on fully? Um, it kind of, yeah, changed. Uh, it it did sort of happen like kind of around the same time. Cause I definitely part of the structure of like wanting to go back to the 1600s throughout the film was 
partly, yeah, not knowing like how much we would be able to get them. Um, the three of them are obviously extremely busy and like iconic women. So <laughs> it was sort of always up in the air. And so that felt like a nice way to be able to have the Sanderson sisters throughout. And, uh, but they might not necessarily be able to be there for the entire thing or like, yeah, if they were only going to be able to come for a week or whatever. Um, and so I think we had, already made it so that it was just the prologue by the time we sent it to them. Um, but yeah, once they came on board, uh, I then got to meet with them. Like truly, uh, I, one of the like greatest days of my life was when they were like, that wants to zoom with you to like go through the script. She has like a couple thoughts on her dialogue. And I was like, Oh my God, incredible. Uh, so we got to zoom with her and she had some ideas that she added in. And then, uh, Kathy also, there were like, some lines from the original that she really wanted to say. So she wanted to add those in and they, I mean, they all just really love these characters so much and they know them so well. And so it was really touching to see like how much ownership they feel over their characters and how much they love them just as much as everybody else does. Uh, It was really awesome. There's also such a specific balance to strike in writing characters like that, where, you know, it is very much kind of leaning into the the camp humor, the heightened elements of who these characters are, and yet also making sure it still feels connected to the audience, especially when there's that much screen time, you know, so having that thing of, of Winifred being someone with an incredibly strong exterior, like you said, her first impetus when she's been wronged is to burn down a house with people in it. <laughs> but at the same time, we see that, that vulnerability when it comes to her relationship with her sisters. And so, how did you want to approach writing these three characters in a way that really lent itself to the heightened elements, which is part of what people love about these characters, but still made sure that there was an emotional connectivity or an understanding of actions in what they're doing and why they're doing it? Yeah. I mean, honestly, (laughs) there's an element of it that is, I mean, again, this is like my uh, Mamma Mia 2 over Godfather (laughs) 2, but (laughs) there's an element of the Real Housewives franchise, which I love. And part of the reason that I love it is that I feel like, you know, as much as those shows like are produced and everyone is aware of like their brand and how they're coming across, they are also, you know, these really complicated women uh, that I feel like we don't necessarily see characters like that uh, in fiction. And so I feel like I love the housewives shows because it's just like, you see these women who are juggling like their ego and like who wants to be more famous and who's richer and like their jobs and their marriages and like all of the stuff. And I, you know, even though they're putting on this facade they you can see like sometimes that they're just these like really scared people who want to be loved. <laughs> and I think that that's so interesting that at the core of every uh villain <laughs> there is just like there is something there uh that doesn't necessarily redeem them but just sort of makes them like a more interesting layered person um and that to me was always at the core of Winifred where it's just like you know if you want to be like young and beautiful and glamorous and just like have everyone look at you and love you and like she's obviously also very sensitive and she is very, her feelings are very easily hurt. And so I'm like, that person wants to be loved. They just don't know how to do it. And so I really love the idea of just teasing that out a little bit and just keeping them still these larger than life characters, but yeah, finding that emotional core and just lacing that in more. 
One of the things that's really fun with the dynamic with the three of them as well is the fact that they are in essence their own worst enemies and their biggest foils, you know, totally. by themselves more than other people. So you take a moment where, um, you know, Sarah tells Becca, oh, we're going to bewitch them with song. And so then they are completely aware of that and escape. Um, what was the fun in writing a lot of scenes like that and figuring out, is it going to be an external force that's going to shut down their attempt in this moment? Or is it actually going to be themselves talking themselves out of a situation because they're always so busy with that dynamic with one another that they are too focused to look outside of themselves? Totally. I mean, uh, Adam Shankman, who uh, he was an executive producer at one point, he was the director, but then he had to jump off and we brought in the wonderful Ann Fletcher. Um, but Adam Shankman, I feel like he was always talking about how like they are the three stooges, like they're just very silly and uh, which I totally agree with. And so, yeah, it was fun to just like keep in mind that they will get in their own way, uh, especially Sarah, who just I feel like is this you know, basically big kid who just like kind of wants to have fun and like contribute. And so uh, she's not necessarily scheming. And so, yeah, she'll have moments like that where she just tells the whole plan to the people that they're about to victimize um, so they can escape. I've also heard you describe the relationship between Winifred and the book as, as very much like she's treating book like she would treat a pet, you know, even just the way that she calls for book. Um, and so how did that, that idea and that conceptualization in your head of, okay, this is a pet, that's where the connectivity comes from, inform the way that you wanted to make sure that that was an existing relationship and write it? Yeah, I mean, that book was another of like the first idea when I was crafting the pitch because the original movie ends with book's eye popping open. Um, and so that to me felt like the most natural jumping off point of like, okay, what has book been doing if he's been awake this whole time? And so I really loved, this is the one thing that it just sort of naturally had to fall out during production, but I always loved it so much. And I was so sad that we didn't get to shoot it. Uh, but it was just like a little montage of young Gilbert and book, uh, like when Gilbert first finds him and book like keeps trying to sneak away because he's looking for Winifred <laughs> and Gilbert has to be like, no, 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 stay. Uh, and so then they kind of become friends sort of in book then like teaches Gilbert how to make a Blackland candle because he's just trying to get Winifred back. Um, and I've just always, I have such a soft spot for like inanimate object characters or just like little weirdo characters. Uh, so it was so fun to make book more of a character and give him an arc. Um, and yeah, just treat him like a little pet. And then one of the things as well that you've been able to really lean into, especially in terms of the comedic sensibility of the film is what is the worldview of these witches? You know, they lived several hundred years ago. They've come back a few times over the years. So they've seen little snippets, but they haven't been out in the world for 30 years. And so even walking into Walgreens and thinking that someone has magical powers because the door is open for them or, you know, not understanding someone taking a selfie on a cell phone with them, um, you know, or a mirror up there. What were some of the ways in which you wanted to make sure that you were always playing around and thinking very specifically about what would they know in the world and what would be something completely new and therefore how would they interpret this information totally I know it's it's such an interesting puzzle because the one line that I would always come back to from the original is uh when Max is uh driving away it's after they um like trick them with the the headlights in the car and then they're driving away and the witches like chase after them on their brooms and Winifred pulls up alongside the window and is like, where's your driver's license? Like, it's just a very jokey thing, but it's just like, 
how would she know what that is? Uh, and that to me feels so perfectly hocus pocus, like the camp nature of just like every once in a while, they say something that you're like, what? <laughs> like even them singing, I put a spell on you. There is like, when they walk into that party, there's a touch of, uh, you can hear that they're playing. I put a spell on you over the speaker. So there's like an illusion to like, okay, they've heard the song, but, uh, it's still a little bit like, why would they know the lyrics to this? Uh, but I love that stuff. And so it was fun to try to figure out like, yeah, when do you want them to kind of be commenting and when do you want them to just sort of be along for the ride? And I think the selfie moment is sort of like the perfect encapsulation of it where, uh, I just was always like, to me, the Sanderson sisters, like, yes, they'll be so confused. They would obviously have no idea like what that is and what a phone is. And uh, they would be scared, but also they are these like wonderful, marvelous divas. And if like, they'll just have something innately in them that knows that they've got to look amazing for a camera. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes as well, because it was so self-referential was the moment where there's a costume contest and they don't even know that that's what's happening but it really leans into that idea of the culture that's been created around Hocus Pocus how the film has been received even the fact that it lent into drag culture I was literally just at a wedding this weekend where they had Hocus Pocus drag performers doing scenes from the first and the second movie oh my god (laughs) (laughs) um and what was the genesis of the idea of wanting to have a moment like that that really it kind of paid homage to the way the audiences have received this film and and it has become such a part of pop culture over the years. Totally. I mean, it was exactly that, that it's just like people love Hocus Pocus and they love Hocus Pocus because they love the Sanderson sisters, like myself included. And yeah, I mean, also like it was always really important to me to have drag queens in it because I do feel like the original Hocus Pocus does feel like queer cinema. Like, it's just like, it's, I feel like it's such a, I don't know, it's just so special. And I feel like it has really attracted like a very, like a lot of love just because people really identify with these women. And I think that's so special and powerful. And so, yeah, the costume contest was really just a nod to like how Hocus Pocus has been embraced by our world in the past 30 years where people just love the Sanderson sisters and, uh, and worship them and dress up like them. (laughs) And yeah, it was just really fun to have them enter that costume contest by accident, uh, and get a glimpse of what they mean in the world of Pocus Pocus, the movie, uh, in that version of Salem. I wanted to ask about the language in the script as well, because I imagine that's kind of a very underestimated element of how detailed that has to be in so many different ways, because you've got the very specific language of the way that the the sisters speak, you know, against everyone in present day. And so how did you really want to utilize language as such a representation of character, even down to what is the language that I'm going to use for the spells that they're concocting? Yeah. I mean, the spells were really fun to write and also very scary uh, because they have to be like, little poems and that feels like very uh it feels literary so it feels like a step up I'm like oh no like I'm (laughs) this one's really challenging but it was very fun to yeah it felt like a little puzzle again because you're sort of like figuring out the meter figuring out the rhymes and then also having to figure out like what would the old words be for what do we need the spell to be um And that also goes back to like book as a character of just like, where is book from and how old is book and what would book know? Um, And so that was 
really fun. And then it's also just so fun to write in like the old English, uh, like these and thighs and thous. Uh, so yeah, it was very fun to play with both of those with old language and present day language. And then almost in the opposite realm, in the way that you've written Becca and her friends, it also really acknowledges that that element of when you're a teenager, there's so many emotions and feelings that you just don't really have the language or the kind of emotional intellect to express out loud. And so it comes out in these very different ways. And so on the opposite end of really leaning into language, how did you find the ways that you almost wanted to pull back from using dialogue, but find what would be the way that this would unleash itself if they're not talking about, if they're not having this conversation? because it still always comes to the surface somehow. Totally. And it's, it's interesting. Like with, I think about like that scene with Cassie and Becca when they're outside the principal's office and like, just in terms of specifically language, like trying to craft the thing where it's like, we think like Becca thinks that Cassie is an enemy essentially now, like that she ditched them and, you know, just went off with her boyfriend and like the cool kids for lack of a better term. And like, just completely kicked them to the curb and doesn't care about them anymore. And so like that moment where Cassie is like, I can't believe you're still doing the birthday ceremony. Like we started that when we were like five, like Becca hears that as that's kids, that's kid stuff. <laughs> I'm still like, I can't swear. We're talking about Disney movie, uh, but they're like, that's kid stuff. That's lame. I'm, I'm better than that now. But Cassie is saying it from a place of like, that's our thing. Like, how could you do that without me? And like, not even invite me. Like, that's just as much mine as yours. Like we've been doing that forever. And I, I love that type of stuff because that feels very, that feels like the kind of thing that even now as an adult, I feel like you can struggle with in your relationships where it's like somebody says something meaning it one way, but it's heard a different way. Like, I remember like a friend of mine was telling me like the biggest thing they took from couples therapy is like, if you're having an argument, like you listen to the person and then you're like, okay, what I've heard from you is this (laughs) so that you make sure you're like hearing what they're intending to say rather than what you're kind of bringing to the conversation. And so that was definitely part of what Cassie and Becca were dealing with and Izzy as well uh even though Izzy I've always felt like was the one that just kind of like Izzy to me is the Mary uh who just wants to keep the peace and you know kind of like can see everything that's going on but is like very loyal to Becca and doesn't want to like hurt Becca's feelings and will obviously take Becca's side uh but is kind of like I feel like you guys should just talk and is always trying to make that happen um but yeah that was fun to play with the language of that with them. And and given how pivotal the moment in the film is where Becca discovers that her that she has powers, did you always have a sense early on of this is kind of structurally the point of the story where I feel like it should show up and this is what I want it to look like or did you have different iterations and ideas of what that was going to look like along the way? There was always different iterations. Yeah, we've explored I feel like so many avenues uh cuz it was sort of like, yeah, do you see touches of it throughout. And then there's the big reveal at the end. Do you not see touches of it throughout? And then there's the big reveal. Or do you start off with her? Like, is that one of the first things that happens? And she is sort of figuring it out along the entire journey. Um, So yeah, we went down many different roads with that. Um, But it was always like, uh, very important to show that like, 
she couldn't do magic alone, that it really was like she needed the belief in her, like from, she needed like Izzy's belief in her and then later Cassie's belief in her. Like she wasn't necessarily strong enough to discover the magic within herself by herself. And I think that that's also like a really powerful message just in terms of the power of friendship and how we can lift each other up and then we can make each other stronger and that there's different types of strength and power, uh, not just magic because Izzy, who's not necessarily a witch, uh, although she kind of becomes one with Becca, uh, you know, she's the one that's able to like make Becca see her power. Well, you've done such a fantastic job in writing the film and in watching it. You can tell that it's someone who has such an affinity and such a love and affection for it that's that's created this. So congratulations on all the well-deserved success of the film. And thank you so much, Jen. Thank you so much. It was so great talking to you.